Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. On today's show, we're going to be discussing um, the increasing dearth of uh, public services in the United States. Um, Both of my co-hosts are looking at me like I pronounced that word wrong, but I'm going to keep going. Um, (laughs) That's right. It's very brave of you. Mention it all. You've noticed. um, How is it pronounced? Dearth? Dearth. Okay, that's what I thought too, but I didn't want to say anything because I'm not brav. <laughs> anyway, so the topic. Yes, uh, as I was saying, um, if you've been paying any attention at all really to uh, the United States government and how it functions over the last several decades, you've noticed that its basic functions have gotten worse. It does a worse job of just about all of the things you would want a government to do, you know, with some few exceptions that we'll get into later in the show, but things like mail delivery and say running an effective vaccine campaign and any number of things are things that the government increasingly seems incapable of doing. And as we'll discuss uh, over the course of today's show, that's in part by design and in part, you know, could be fixed with just basic competence. But Noah, this was uh, largely your idea for a subject. Um, What do you have to say? For myself? um, The first thing I have to do is I got to put on my best Adam Johnson impression and say this is a uh, spiritual successor to episode 112, Death Cult. So if if that gives you some idea of where we're going to take this, it's kind of a similar thing, except that We're now on the other end of the 2020 election, and uh, boy, have things not fundamentally changed, as Joe Biden promised that they would not. So I guess that's the one promise he's kept this entire time. The, The reason the genesis of this episode was actually several months ago when I was wondering why you couldn't get a snowplow to go down a residential road more than once a day in my area. And how obviously it felt that this was a a difference between where I used to live, which was a much more, a much tonier suburb. And now where, well, uh, it's full of more normal people who, you know, have actual material needs and are not completely secure in their walled off compounds. And as a result, suddenly a lot of the services get worse. A lot of them are left up to private companies and that sort of uh, depublicization of basic services has a bit of a ripple effect because, I mean, these are things that we all rely on. In the case of snowplows, you have to drive to work. Not all of us were fortunate enough to work from home during the pandemic. And a lot of us that were fortunate enough 
have since been put back into the office. So obviously vehicles are back on. Somebody's going to make sure that in the winter, there isn't a bunch of stuff keeping you from having a car accident. And many mornings during the winter, there was nobody doing that. And it was because uh, it, from what I later found out, I mean, there was a big labor shortage in terms of drivers. I mean, there was a labor shortage and everything because nobody wanted to pay them any money. And in the case of plow drivers, you would see these big signs on the highway that said, you know, plow drivers uh, wanted, or there was one called plow for New York state, which I'm going to just let that sit there and marinate. Um, but I was looking around and I found this article uh, from North country public radio where the supervisor for a sort of, I think a regional New York state department of transportation hub mentioned that part of the problem is that a lot of people with commercial driving licenses preferred to then become Amazon drivers or other kinds of delivery drivers. And that New York state wasn't competing in terms of salary. Um, so they were having to get people who had worked for the Department of Transportation 20, 25, 30 years had retired to come back, get behind the wheel, plow again, and get all this work done because it's the North Country. You're out by the Adirondacks, the St. Lawrence River. I mean, it's it's crazy uh, what, what they would need to be able to do out there, the, the control, the precision, everything. So that was the start of this episode. And then once I realized this and like an adult began thinking about services other people also need, it sort of very quickly becomes obvious that this is the case for everything. It doesn't matter where you look. Over the past five decades, we have lost so much ground as a country in terms of the idea that the government does anything for its citizens. We'll get to what it's willing to do to its citizens later, but for its citizens, it doesn't keep us safe. It doesn't take care of our health. It doesn't educate us. I was seeing today figures that if you adjust for inflation, um, apparently this is the state of Iowa, but the university, the, the state funds higher education there to the tune of less than 25% what it did in the 1970s. That's a 75% funding cut. Uh, for those of you who you know might have trouble doing quick maths there, in a period of time where the country has supposedly only gotten more productive, richer, and supposedly more capable of keeping all of its citizens well-fed, well-cared for, well-educated, the whole shebang. And instead, what we have is people are taken care of as badly, if not worse, than they were. They are fed as badly, if not worse, than they were. The government does less than it ever did, and the private companies that have stepped in to quote-unquote fill the void aren't getting the job done either. And so the question becomes, you know, how widespread is this, number one? Number two, why has it been allowed to happen, number two? And number three, and most depressingly, where is it not happening? I I think I can sort of get to... uh... Question two out of your trio there, which is, you know, why was this allowed to happen? And the answer is, in many cases, it happened to thunderous applause. It happened with uh, Ronald Reagan becoming president on the back of a line about how uh, I'm from the government and here to help was the most terrifying words in the English language. You know, there was a very real anti-government sentiment that 
took over the government starting in the 1980s. Um, you know, some have called this uh, movement neoliberalism. Uh, also happened almost simultaneously in the UK with Margaret Thatcher's government. But, you know, you had people who were ideologically committed to the idea that the government could not and should not do all of the things it had been doing. And these jobs were best left to private services who could do so more efficiently, you know, saving everybody money and, you know, we'd all be happier for it. And the past 40 years have shown that well, no, we aren't really happier for it. And, you know, we do miss the things that we used to have in terms of public services and functioning governance. One of the impacts of electing a bunch of anti-government people to your government is the government's basic functions don't run as well. To give one example of this, we have the United States Post Office, which is currently being run by a man named Louis DeJoy, who, um, as we've discussed at times on Punching Out, isn't really interested in um, doing that job well, if your standard for well is, you know, delivering the mail on time. But he is doing the job that he wants to do, which is uh, making it more, quote unquote, efficient, which is to say uh, cheaper doing less for you, the citizen. Yeah. And as anybody who has gone through the education system in the past two decades, like I can, there's a, a very clear mistrust of anybody who works for the government in any capacity. So as a teacher, um, not that I'm a teacher, nobody here is obviously. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's right. That's especially not me. Saying. Definitely not. Uh, you, how many times have people said, well, as a taxpayer, teachers need to do this or that or whatever, uh, cutting funding for schools and increasing um, the use of charter schools. So we're gutting the systems that we are claiming are so inefficient. Uh, and education is one of the greatest and most visible examples of that. Um, we've talked many times about how uh, one of the tenets of disaster capitalism is to come through, wipe out the education system in an area and prop up a bunch of for-profit charter schools. Uh, because privatization is just some people lying to you because they want to make money. That's what it always ends up being. It's a, a deliberate lie to make money while saying we're talking about efficiency. At, at what point are you efficient if you're turning it into a deliberate for-profit System. Well, I think that sort of gets at the root cause of a lot of this because so specifically when it comes to education, right? The For every one well-intentioned charter school somewhere in this country, because there are some that are run directly by towns in defiance of, you know, like county districts and things like that. Uh, and even those have a huge amount of their own issues, usually related to classism, racism, but for every single one that is remotely well-intentioned, there are, I would estimate, dozens that are nothing but grifts. And they're grifts of various kinds, not just pedagogical ones, but and not just end runs about around labor, but your basic real estate grift, your basic, you know, 
services, Griff, where you get everybody, all of your friends to come and provide services and get money out of the city. And what you end up seeing is that governors, mayors, uh, the federal government to an extent are perfectly willing to do this because the effects are going to be felt down the line. In 20 years, nobody's going to remember why that charter school is on that street corner. Nobody's going to know what pack of officials put it there. But they'll have made their money off of it, and so will their friends who will have donated to their campaigns. And that is the lasting effect. And that's sort of, and and it's particularly weird because there's this idea that for-profit automatically means efficiency when we know for a fact that the only efficiencies the for-profit sector actually seeks to build in, we're seeing this with Starbucks under possible genius of the year, Howard Schultz. I mean, it's early yet, but... My man is, I mean, he is making that productive campaign happen yet again. Um, It's just a question of whether he's going to hold down the stretch. We're seeing that the only efficiencies that they care about are violating labor law. That's it. They, there's no other actual efficiency to any of this stuff. And with the mail service in particular... Louis DeJoy has been basically allowed to continue doing his job by an administration that is playing excessively by the book, particularly weird when in the last episode we talked about the ways in which the NLRB is willing to not play by the book and to maybe extend the book a little bit more. But for some reason, when it comes to the Postmaster General, you know, a constitutional responsibility of the government, the government has to deliver the mail. It's in that sacred document that everybody keeps worshiping in this country. And yet, despite that, we are letting a man who has absolutely no interest in getting that done lead the Postal Service. Despite the fact that he was appointed by a president of a different party, despite the fact that there are mechanisms to get rid of him in place that would not be answerable. Like, if you want to talk about how we know that both parties are kind of in on this, there's a perfect example. The joy has slowed down mail service repeatedly, has under the guise of efficiency, you know, made it more difficult for you to get your mail, raised prices for you to get your mail, and the delivery of uh, uh, delayed things, not just packages, but even letters, which were supposed to, he claimed, you know, low volume kind of thing. And meanwhile, we're getting more junk mail than we ever have. And there is no effort to even remotely curb that. Because that stuff that goes to a for-profit corporation, those are the people who are going to put money in his pockets. The man is an open grifter, and he's just being allowed to sit there. And it's because the thought is he's a private sector type. He's the kind of person we can actually bring in to, you know, change things around, to drain the swamp of, you know, the mail carriers who are, in many cases, some of the few good jobs in an area, large population of, you know, people of color, of veterans, of a lot of other people that both parties claim to support in very different ways, but for some reason, keep trying to lay off. It's very, very strange. It's almost like their stated priorities are very different from what they actually want to do. And sometimes in this world, in 2022, it seems kind of weird to harp on the Postal Service so much. But again, this is a stupid country that worships a piece of paper written like 250 years ago because it cannot get over the, like, I don't know, the size of uh, like a drop cap in the opening paragraph or whatever, or it has this idea that for some reason this document is sacrosanct. This is in there. It is a stated responsibility of the United States government. 
So I would love to see where are all of our originalists on this. Where are all the people that know the weirdo second and third verses of the national anthem? Where are all of the people that can't stop taking pictures of themselves with all their guns and Gadsden flags? I would love to know where they are on this issue because they don't seem to be anywhere. So seems like they might not know what they're talking about as well as they say they do. Uh, to give some specifics to the uh, Postal Service changes, um, you know, more than just the vague sense that everything is getting worse, there are real standards changes being made. Uh, quoting from an NPR article from late April, the U.S. Postal Service currently considers a first-class package to be late if it's delivered more than three days after it was sent. But under new standards that take effect next month, more than 30% of first-class packages will be seen as delivered on time if they arrive within four or five days. And, you know, shifting the standards so that the numbers look better while service doesn't actually improve or, in many cases, is allowed to slip. You know, the Postal Service is a very public example. It's right there in the Constitution, uh, as Noah pointed out. But, you know, it's not just the Postal Service. Um, During the pandemic, uh, schools were given waivers so that uh, effectively every student could have free school lunch if they so chose. Um, This was not the case before the pandemic, but, you know, new um, rules and new funding was given for school lunch programs so that due to the various impacts of COVID, kids wouldn't have to worry about where they were getting their lunch. Um, And school lunches were delivered over the summer in many cases. Um, Those waivers have been allowed to slip by Congress. You know, they expire at the end of this month. There's no intention on the part of Congress to prevent them from expiring. And so as one Guardian article reports that, a hunger crisis looms for 10 million children um, who will now have to go without the school lunches that were provided for, you know, over the last couple of years. You know, it's things like this that um, <clears throat> we're seeing more and more headlines and articles about, you know, the government doesn't seem to be doing much of anything. Anything. And let's also reminder that one of the reasons why it was so important for kids to go back to school was so that they could have food. And now that we've forced the issue, gone back to school so that we could feed children, and now we're saying children don't need to be fed. Who cares anymore? There is no political will whatsoever to do anything that would actually help a single person. No, that's not true. They'll help one billionaire. They might help okay, well, a handful hardly, of. There it is. I was going to say that's hardly fair. Millionaires, it's like billionaires. Yeah, they might help a handful of those things, those people, but anything that would help the rest of us, like at this point, we have to understand that there is no definition of democracy that exists that uh, the majority of people would agree is a definition of a democracy that we fit as a country. We don't live in a democracy. We don't. Uh, no, at no point are, is the will of the people being met. And we can see that through the fact that we don't have anything. We don't have anything. To your point about democracy, there was a blog post I came across a, a few weeks ago, um, and I'm going to forget who wrote it now, and I apologize to whoever I'm not attributing the work to, but um, you know, basically ran down the data on midterm elections, which for the past 
seven decades or so have consistently gone against the party that uh, had control of the presidency. You know, regardless of what's happening in the country, the country will vote against the party that is perceived to be in power because the president is is in office. And, you know, a lot of coverage around midterm elections likes to make it about, you know, specific issues that are happening at the time. But doesn't it seem odd that all of those issues would consistently be, you know, against the party that holds the presidency? Doesn't that seem like too much of a coincidence? And the argument that this post makes out is that effectively people have internalized the idea that voting won't change what happens for them. They have come to the conclusion that no matter what they vote for, it's not really going to happen. It's not going to better their lives. And so what you see in midterm elections is a lot of people choosing not to vote and other people just choosing to vote out of spite towards the people they perceive as having power now, you know, vote the bums out. They're not doing anything for me. You know, at the very least, a different class of bums will be in power next time. And, you know, if you look at how public services have been gutted over the last several decades, you can understand how many people reach that conclusion. Um, We talked a bit on the last episode, the one about the NLRB, about how much of government policy, you know, even liberal democratic policy has been sort of hidden behind, you know, layers of legalese and all of these carve outs and, you know, various mechanisms that make, you know, public goods or, you know, the thing that legislation is supposed to do, which is help people, less visible to the people receiving the help. Uh, They get it through some program who, you know, they might not even know is run by the government. And in some cases is not because it's been farmed off to a public-private partnership or what have you. All of this being to say that there's sort of a vicious circle in effect where the gutting of public services leads to people reaching the same conclusion Ronald Reagan did, which is that, no, actually, the government can't help people. So, you know, why should I want all of these public services? And that's how we get to where we are now. Yeah. And it's it's particularly sickening because you have a party that knows it's about to get creamed in the midterms and that has been exhorting people that they need to vote bluer and harder. Going to let that one sit there too. Uh, for the past two years and basically done nothing but. Even as you know, they re- they continue to politicize the CDC uh, during a pandemic. Uh, you know, roll out Rochelle Walensky to cry in front of Congress every time her indications do exactly what they were meant to do, which is just put people back at work and give them viruses. Um, there's been no attempt to actually provide to actually push back on any of these recalcitrant Democrats and see if. You know, you can get something like Build Back Better passed. Uh, There's been constant procedural trickery that's been sold to us as legislative wizardry that has almost all of it fallen completely flat on its face. And in the end, what you have is a party that at least should be interested in possibly surviving a midterm election and doesn't appear to be. They have reached the conclusion that they're going to get voted out no matter what they do. So why put in any effort? But the thing about it is that if you don't put in the effort and you guarantee the loss of Congress to the other party, then you definitely can't do anything. 
So you're passing up. This is kicking the field goal when you have the best short. Uh, pardon me. This is about to be a butchered football analogy, but you're on fourth and one, and you're choosing to kick the field goal when you're down by four. Because you are you are Dan Quinn right now. Do not ever be Dan Quinn. That is a bad place to be in. So the the fact that they are actively choosing to just lose that much worse tells you that either, and, and both of these things are equally disgusting, that either they want the money they can raise and the 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 anger that they can stir up and all of that to never to to make fewer and fewer people question Democratic Party orthodoxy. And that's that's what they want out of this. Or they are so completely incompetent that it's a wonder they won in 2020 and look what they were up against. So we're we're really behind the eight ball here when it comes down to it either way. And I don't really know how you're supposed to work your way out of that one. Yeah. Um, as with a lot of punching out segments, this one is going to end on a bleak note. But um, I don't have good news for you. The next one isn't going to be much better. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Still hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. In our first segment today, we talked about the uh, growing sense and, you know, provable fact that American public services have been um, gutted over the last several decades to the point where many people will not really encounter them in their lives. It's easy to at least at the very least overlook the role public services play in creating our society and making it a society worth living in because well that's been the point of the republican political project for the past several decades to reduce the role of government and to get everybody to valorize the private sector in its stead i'm going to shift gears a bit in this segment to talk about one area of uh, so-called public service where the poor performance can't directly be tied to um, a cut in payment or a reduction of funding, and that's policing. American police have been in the spotlight in recent years for you know several high-profile incidents of brutality, to say nothing of the many thousands of less high-profile incidents of brutality that they bring upon uh, communities, largely uh, communities of color in this country. But they've also come under scrutiny for inaction in the uh, Uvalde shooting uh, that happened a few weeks ago in Uvalde, Texas, where police stood outside and waited for over an hour as the shooter meticulously made his way through a classroom full of elementary school children. And I, I think this incident, more than any other I can remember, has people actually questioning, well, do police do their jobs? Do, 
And by jobs, I mean the jobs that people think police have, the one where they, you know, save the day and, you know, everybody's happy at the end of the TV show. There has been no shortage of funding for the police. This is the one area of government where Republicans are not that interested in gutting their services. And yet, this is what we have to show for it. What's going on here? I mean, it's exactly what you said. Like, the only thing that we will fund in this country is violence. I think Noah said it many times on this this show that uh, between the fact that we have a hugely bloated military budget that still somehow makes planes that don't fly and boats that are allergic to water, like, that's all we ever spend money on. We we have become basically an arms dealer for the entire world. Oh, I hate to tell you this. That's been the case for several decades. Yes. But now it's all we can fund within our own borders as well. Uh, we are essentially arms dealers for our own population in that I saw an article this morning. I need to look it up. But a former police chief or something like that was given three years probation for illegally buying or illegally reselling automatic weapons, which is a sentence that should have gotten him. I'm sorry? 200 of them. Yeah, 200 of them. sold 200 machine guns. Is that a lot? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It's, it's, well, one is supposed to get you 10 years of prison um, because it's a felony. And he got three years probation for doing 200. So presumably if he'd done like 400, he would have gotten a year of half of probation. That's not how those numbers work. Well, here we are, folks. Uh, and there was also a story this weekend of the Tempe, Arizona police watching a man drown and refuse to do anything. And they're just on administrative leave. Like, it's still paid and everything. They just watched a man drown and said, we're not helping you. That's why. What and in- and when, the, when the man's wife screamed at them to help, they tried to attack they they threatened her with arrest which of course i i didn't know that the tempe police department's theme song was in the air tonight but now we now it's understandable finally i think what you it, i think ryan you you pointed out that uvalde you know for once for the first time in like 70 years i think i have that right finally stopped the like constant whistling of the andy griffith show theme in people's heads <laughs> Where like they kept thinking that cops were like the ones from Big Rock Candy Mountain or something, and that that somehow they were like normal and and capable of doing something other than violence to people who can't do anything in return, and now we have, to use a legal term, prima facie evidence that that is not the case, and because of Uvalde, people journalists all over the country are finally willing to say, no, actually, this is a story that we've basically sat on because we don't want our house to get firebombed or, you know, we don't want to show up dead. Like a lot of Ferguson activists have been over the past several years. And nobody seems interested in investigating any of that. Not the federal government, not the state, not local cops, certainly. Um, And what you have is now like I've seen this online and I've kind of thought this for a while, but what you have is now you have a warrior cast is what the police says. They're a bunch of people who are paid to do violence on behalf of more powerful people than them. 
their incompetence at what they say they do, much like the fact that, you know, medieval knights, samurai, any of these other types of people also didn't do a damn thing that they said they did, is a is not a bug, it's a feature. They are there to protect the powerful. I grew up in San Juan, Puerto Rico. We uh, Ever since I was a kid, the main thing I'd ever been told is, if you get in trouble with a cop, start speaking English. Most of them don't, and because I don't have much of an accent in my English, that'll throw them off. And suddenly they'll stutter all over themselves trying to figure out, you know, oh my God, how do I get out of this one? I, I can't, uh, I, don't, I don't speak this language that well. This person is making me feel small. And I remember when I was a kid, I remember a cop pushing my dad into an intersection, forcing him to run a red so he could ticket him. And I remember cops when my dad's house got broken into asking him why he bothered calling if there was no insurance on any of the stuff that was stolen. So that's my experience with police. And the United States is starting to catch up to where I've been this whole time. And I really wish they didn't have to because the way that it's happened has been soaked in blood and tears. And you've had Pete Arredondo, the chief of police in Ovalde, not not apologizing, sorry, uh, excusing his officers for being cowards. When, as people have repeatedly pointed out, not only would most of us probably not have waited for an hour, but some of us, number one, I guess I, I finally have to mention it, some of us, part of our job is to take a bullet for our students. We are, quote unquote, trained to do it. But cops couldn't, despite having, you know, body armor, despite having military equipment, despite having health care that's far better than anything I'll ever have, despite having pensions after 20 years, which almost nobody has anymore, despite having automatic respect and political power that almost no profession has anymore, they sat there and waited. And when one mother rushed into the building and therefore proved their cowardice, they tried to arrest her too. And it was up to the parents who were there. And I think one of the federal agents who was there to basically stop the cops from doing this, basically out of a fear of bad public relations, not even because they thought they were doing something wrong, because clearly these people have no morals. And she rushed in, grabbed her kids, rushed back out. She's finally spoken to media. And if you listen to the interview, all you can think is something horrible is going to happen to this lady. Because by being willing to speak out, and, and the reporter tries to ask a couple questions that are very much meant to elicit an angry response. And she doesn't bite when you watch the interview. She doesn't take the bait. She doesn't go for the easy shot that she could. Which, you know, that's what cops do. They just go for the easy shot. But because she doesn't, that might be the only thing protecting her. Because as long as she and her kids are walking around, they are proof that the Uvalde Police Department, I I cannot say what should happen without getting us fined. I mean, that it, it is... As somebody who works in a school, as somebody who's done lockdown drills, as somebody who's sat there and, you know, wondered... Am I ever going to have to use any of this? Am I ever going to have to throw a heavy object? What am I going to do when a kid starts laughing while he's hiding because he's not used to suffering any kind of actual you know, danger, material danger in his life? I cannot begin to describe the anger 
And the yeah, that's it. There's no disappointment. I didn't think they were going to do anything good. But this is even beyond. The, the bar was so low. And yet they managed to limbo their way under it, regardless. I'd be impressed if I wasn't so angry. Now, there's a potential response to the very public failure of the police in Uvalde to effectively make them scapegoats and, you know, say, okay, these are the bad apples. We found them. We're going to get rid of these ones and problem solved. But, you know, if you're a regular listener by now, you've probably surmised that it's not just the police in Uvalde that are the problem with police. You know, they're not the only bad ones out there. Um, any number of instances of unarmed children uh, being shot by police can point to this. But nevertheless, um, I, I think it's worth sort of dispelling the idea for those who might still be under that, uh, you called it the Andy Griffith show idea of, you know, what police do all day, you know, just solving crime, saving the day. Um, this is from an article in the American Prospect, quote, According to the most recent data published by the FBI, the rates at which police forces are solving crimes have plunged to historic lows. In the case of murders and violent crime, clearance rates have dipped to just 50%, a startling decline from the 1980s when police cleared 70% of all homicides. It's not just murder. Manslaughter is down to 69% clearance from 90% 40 years ago. Clearances in assault and rape cases have dropped to 40% and 30% respectively. Nonviolent property crimes like burglary, which involves illegally entering a property, theft, which involves taking property from another person, and motor vehicle theft are getting solved at a microscopic 14%, 15%, and 12% respectively. You know, when you add it all up, and they do later on in the article, something like 25% of crimes are cleared, which is to say that someone goes to jail for them, and not necessarily the correct someone, but someone goes to jail. This is not the perception that you would have if you spend your nights watching Blue Bloods and Chicago PD and, you know, the endless stream of police procedurals that fill American television. This is, you know, very different. And it's in stark contrast to the fact that, like we said at the beginning of the subject, or segment, I should say, police funding hasn't really gone anywhere over the last few decades. You know, in other areas of American public life, you can point to decisions that were made, policies that were put in place to reduce, you know, the share of public funding that goes to education, higher education, uh, you know, snowplow services, you know, what have you. you. But policing, uh, you know, you can't say that about that. They have higher budgets now than they ever have. And yet they're measurably worse at their stated jobs than ever before. I, I think it's worth noting that, you know, the calls to defund the police became, you know, most publicly heard in the year 2020, which, you know, following the coronavirus pandemic, cities were faced with a real budget crisis. Uh, you know, tax revenues were being impacted in all of these different ways by COVID. And, you know, without federal funding that eventually came and, you know, not entirely the funding that cities necessarily needed, um, these cities were going to have to make significant cuts to their budget. And in response to uh, calls to defund the police, police were effectively 
immunized from being, you know, one of the departments that would have to make any cuts at all. And it's, so at a time when all of these other services are seeing cuts of five, six, 10%, police in most American cities didn't see a dime not go to them. It was sort of, you know, so calls to defund the police, you know, take place in that context where cities are defunding other services instead. That was something that India Walton in Buffalo was particularly famous for, the way that she talked about how it wasn't a question of defunding the police. It was a question of funding other things instead. You know, like it's a zero sum game, unfortunately, a budget. You, if you take away from somebody, you have, if you give it to somebody, you have to take it away from somewhere else. And police have an excessive share of most localities as budgets, especially when they do such a terrible job. And when they get so much of their equipment, which pretty soon is going to include the boats that are allergic to water and the planes that can't fly and keep killing their pilots uh, or breaking or trying to break their necks anyway. All of those are, they're given to them for free or at a massively reduced cost. So you've got these people who are increasingly proven to just be violent. And that's pretty much it. That seems to be the only character trait you need to be a police person in the United States of America in the year 2022. Um, and and have the willingness to practice that violence on people who can't do anything about it. Because as we've seen, you know, after years of being told the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun, we saw what all the good guys with guns did when faced with one bad guy with a gun. Nothing. Less than nothing, actually. It seems increasingly like they put him in that classroom. Allegedly, we don't know yet, but somehow every revelation keeps getting worse. So I don't know at this point. The the level of cruelty that is visited on every other kind of service, the fact that social workers, the fact that teachers, the fact that whatever is left of public health care, wherever you are, which is not much, let's be clear, the fact that all sorts of government employees, the fact that snowplow drivers, the fact that uh, town clerks, you know, are, are asked to make do with less and less, asked to take on more responsibilities, libraries, parks, everything is asked to take less money and do more with it, to continually engage the community, to justify their existence. And meanwhile, police get to sit there and like an umpire with a gun, be incompetent and be rewarded for it because like an umpire, their job is to rig the game. Their job is to make sure that the person that the state wants to win wins. And therefore, all they ever do is protect property and seize it from people because that's the other thing. A lot of the reason these cities don't want to defund the police is number one, fear. Because the the mayor of no city wants to be walking and have a bunch of mounted cops show up in their way like they will if you go to any kind of city council meeting about them. And they'll claim that it's because, you know, it, it I don't know, we wanted to take the horses out for a stroll. And then you've got the second reason, which is that these police departments bring in revenue. They are a source of profit for these cities. Of course, they the cities wouldn't need that profit if they didn't give all that money to the police in the first place. So it's kind of a catch 23 situation there where they keep giving all this money to the police. So that they need the police to go and get them more money, which I believe 
is exactly how we got every other horrible regime in history when you have posses and mercenaries and knights and all these other people being predators upon the people that they're supposed to protect. That's what police have become in this era. And it's not good. Like, there's no round table. There's no King Arthur. There never was. And it's really sad that we still have people believing the myths sold to them by Law and Order and Blue Bloods and whatever. I'll stop advertising them. That, that we still have people thinking that that's what that is. In fact, the, the, the United States is one of the few countries that bonds those two functions, the investigative and the patrolling functions of police together to the degree that we do. It, it's not that common the world over. And maybe that's why we're in the hole that we are. Because the assumption is that the same patrol, the the same cop that, you know, beats up a random person for daring to say the wrong swear word to him is the same guy who might later solve your murder. So, you know, you better not do anything to anger him. All of this is a lot. I I understand. Um, More in this American Prospect article that, I mean, it largely repeats the points we've been making, but I think it's worth repeating because, you know, over two years since George Floyd now, um, cities don't seem to have gotten the lesson. They don't seem to have, uh, in fact, if anything, they have seemed to take glee in specifically not getting the lesson and going directly against the lesson. Uh, I now live in New York City, governed by Eric Adams. Uh, we've talked about him before on Punching Out. And, you know, his response to just about anything that happens in the city is to an Increase the presence of police in public spaces. I don't remember if we discussed on this show the uh, his quotes about how there were barbecues on the subway and how police desperately needed to you know shut down the various uh, fruit salesmen and saleswomen uh, you know who can be found in public spaces. Uh, just you know, real delightful guy, genius candidate. I think. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, I bring up the city I live in now because. Uh, New York City also had a fairly high-profile shooting in recent months. Uh, you know, it's an American city. Uh, to quote from the article, um, in April, a shooter in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, injured more than two dozen New Yorkers in a staged attack before escaping on the train from a comparatively tiny station. He wasn't caught until he called himself into a tip line. And even then, police were slower to respond to a self-report than a local worker at a Manhattan vape shop who spotted him and also called the cops. Um, which... Just a real Normal. tapestry in that sentence. <laughs> we don't have time to unpack all of that. And this, you know, took place after Eric Adams had already made a public show of increasing the police presence in the subway. And as somebody who rides the subway, you know, most days out of the week, the police presence is largely them standing around watching YouTube on their phones with their masks down, right in front of signs saying that masks are required more, more often than not we're retreading the same ground when we talk about this stuff, but I I don't know what else to do at this point because the same problems keep happening. I mean, it's, it's abundantly clear that police have too much money. Um, They're going to continue to be whiny crybabies the second they're asked to do anything at all. And I think it should be a telling fact that they make the local news every time they do their jobs correctly every time they actually save a life, every time they uh, give to charity or whatever. It's just minor baby stuff. And 
that makes the news and that's the propaganda that we get. And I think we need to talk about that more. The fact that it's so commonplace, cops being evil creatures, uh, that it doesn't make the news, but every time they're, they do their jobs, it's noteworthy. No profession in America is held to a lower standard. No profession. No, no line cook. No, I, I, I mean, I can't even think. No, no, no one picking strawberries is held to a lower standard than police. I mean, you can find, it doesn't matter. This, this was something that we talked about all the way back in 2012. Traven Martin happened. Well, that wasn't actually a police officer. Next shooting happens. Well, there's no video. Then there was video. Oh, well, you know, he was running away and, uh, or sorry. Well, maybe he was armed. He was running away the next time. Like it, it, there is no point at which for a sizable fraction of the American public, police can do wrong. There is a, there is no point for a bunch of chuds, which is what they are, at which a police officer has actually done something wrong. And that is how you get the police that we have. When you are incapable of holding somebody to any standard. And I know that because I am one of because I work in a profession that is continually having its bar raised by people who want to give us less to do it with. And I know what it feels like to keep being asked to meet a higher and higher standard and to give more and more of yourself to do it. And then I get to watch these people complain that they're ever asked to do their job, despite having all of the funding in the world, uh, unaccountable overtime, the uh, qualified immunity, a bunch of other privileges that none of us have. And by the way, if you're listening to this and you're the kind of person who thinks it would be a good idea to arm teachers, this is why they're never going to do it, because this country is only capable of respecting you if you carry a gun to work. And teachers don't. And if they did... Well, but if they did, then maybe they'd have to respect teachers and they don't want to do that. That's why it's not going to happen. At least not until they replace all of them with retired cops. Then maybe. There's a real sort of uh, confluence of issues that has uh, been made clear by the response to the Uvalde shooting, which has been on the right, the call to... um, you know, arm teachers and to uh, turn every school into a fortress at great expense. And from the Democratic Party, the response has been to, you know, talk about the need for some measure of gun control. And because of how Congress is set up, know that nothing like that is going to happen. To some extent, our um, public service problem, the one that we spent the first segment discussing, you know, where nothing gets funded anymore where everybody is expected to operate on shoestring budget. You know, that is trickling down from a government where nothing can pass, where nothing that would actually provide for the public good is allowed to get through a, you know, Senate that is alternately, you know, log jammed by a mere partisan difference with the president or by, you know, the filibuster, which prevents it from doing anything without a supermajority. This is the part of the show where we usually try to end on a positive note, but, and we discussed this beforehand, but it's um, hard to know how to turn a positive out of what we've discussed today, because, you know, there are cases where the horizon looks good, where we can point to an example of, you know, some union forming somewhere as evidence that 
you know, maybe this issue is turning around. On this issue, though, I'm not sure we see that. There's not much evidence that the uh, death spiral of our public services is, you know, going to reach a nadir and spiral back upwards. You know, it's hard to see where that's going to come from. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I can say is that we together need to look out for one another and think that community and services are something that we can all be part of um, and that we can welcome others into our spaces and make them equitable and work for everyone. And we don't necessarily need... The government could make that a lot easier. They certainly could, but we we have to look out for one another. You know, we don't have public services because we also don't have a public. Not really. Yeah. You know, true. one one big thing with the Bush administration was how they defined the American people down to people who agree with us. And now at this point, we just don't have an American people. And I'm not going to sit here and do some corny rhetorical trickery. Uh, about you know red states or blue states, but the United States or any of that, that that's not going to fly. What we have is a collection of individuals, and and in particular, this is true. To be fair, this is particularly true with white people, with middle class and above people, with straight people. Like yes, there are a lot of of communities of color. There are a lot of queer communities. There are a lot of communities that because they are not in power right, have to develop that sense to be able to survive and thrive. Um, And the government obviously has been anything from indifferent to an obstacle actively to any or all of those throughout the time that, that they've, they've tried to do this stuff Um, and, and be, you know, fully realized people who can be together and have their own spaces and, and live fulfilling lives. And, a lot of the problem is that we have a country full of people that don't know what public what a public service looks like because they can only think of public services in terms of their own benefits. And for a long time, we thought that that trick would work, that if you get people to vote in favor of their own interests, you know, that'll be enough. And I don't think it's going to work because you can't build a nation of people uh, you can't build a services net that covers a nation of people if everybody's only focused on what am I personally, individually getting out of this. And that is how most Americans, sorry, that is how a lot of Americans, maybe not most, but certainly enough of the ones that matter to the state, matter to the cops, matter to the media. That's how they see everything. I don't really know how you overcome that. Because there are so many divisions that if you're not one of them, there are a lot of things maybe not making you super welcome in other spaces for understandable reasons. But there's got to be something better than being a sack of potatoes, to use the Marxist term. There's got to be something better than all being completely discrete and separate and isolated and alienated um, within a very big country with a sclerotic government that is completely uninterested in doing anything but killing people at home and abroad. And frankly, at this point, as somebody who didn't grow up surrounded by all the national mythology and all this, I really don't understand how, if you have American citizenship at this point, how you're okay with that. 
how you're okay with living in a country that literally all it can do is export death. That seems to me like the kind of thing that would make me very ashamed and very embarrassed. And I know a lot of people feel that way, but I'm very confused by the people that don't. We're nearing the end of our hour here, but um, I'm sorry to the listeners for whom this last hour has been uh, bleak and depressing. You know, we, like I said, we try to end our episodes on a positive note, but sometimes there just isn't one. For this week, I'm Ryan. I'm Lou. I was Noah. And this was Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.